my, my essential thing about Boris, it, very obvious point, but somehow people miss it, is that he has very grave uh, defects, which are never going to go away. But he's very, very remarkable. In my view, that meant that he was the only person who could bring off Brexit. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Hello, you're listening to Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. I'm the editor of Premier Christianity magazine. And here on The Profile, we speak to a different Christian every week to find out something of their life story. And I'm delighted to say that my guest today is Lord Charles Moore. He's a British journalist and author. He's previously edited The Daily Telegraph, The Sunday Telegraph and The Spectator. He is also the authorised biographer of Margaret Thatcher. And he became a member of the House of Lords in 2020. Lord Moore, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you, Sam. Lovely to be here. So tell me a little bit about life growing up. Let's go right back to the beginning. I understand you were born in Hastings, is that right? Yes, and um, brought up near there. And in fact, I live near there now, um, not in the same house, but but nearby. So most of my life, I've been within a sort of seven mile radius. And there, was there much of a, a faith background in your early childhood? Well, uh, Yes and no. My 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 father's family were all um, practicing Anglicans, um, and I would say seriously practicing. Um, and my great grandfather was a bishop, and that sort of thing. My aunt was married to a bishop. However, my father was the only one of his family who was an agnostic, um, and my mother was from a non-religious background, but um, actually became an Anglican. So I would say. The general atmosphere of the upbringing was um, Anglican um, and qu- quite knowledgeably so, not not sort of, it went along with a sort of very liberal attitude to um, discussion. So it, there was, nobody had to take a particular line on anything. There was a lot of sort of argument about all sorts of family who loved arguing about public affairs and ideas and that sort of thing. Um, so I wouldn't say it had a very strong um direction that we were told to take um but it was broadly speaking um uh, a christian uh background and and in many ways a well-informed one actually it's it's interesting that there was that kind of discussion because one could say that set you up quite nicely for a career in journalism which is all about hearing different points of view so you can remember those sorts of family debates about religion and politics very much and um you know, it was always traditional. You weren't supposed to talk about religion or politics socially, wasn't it? That used to be one of the things that people always said. And you can see why, because it makes everyone so angry. But um, I was not brought up like that. So I used to cause trouble as a child. And I didn't realise why when I went off to uh, friends for tea or something like that when I was little. And I would start arguing. Um, I don't mean about the quality of the tea. I mean about some <laughs> public issue or something uh, in a sort of annoyingly precocious way, which the the um the neighbors didn't appreciate i think and i i didn't really understand why because my my background was very much that that was the type of discussion that took place over the uh, 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 you know breakfast or tea or whatever and um and and that was my sort of meat and drink really is there a moment in your childhood or teenage years where christian faith became a little bit more real for you and it wasn't just about your parents anymore Yes, but I wouldn't say a moment. I would say more like a trend. So um, 
except for one or two trivial um, sort of usual wobbles that people have as a teenager, I would say I'd been a consistently practicing uh, Christian um, in a sense all my life. Um, and for me, the focus of that was very uh, liturgical. I'm not much good at um, just sitting there and being Christian, if you know what I mean. Um, I, I'm not very good at um, solitary prayer. I find prayer better, more, more efficacious. This is my fault, not anybody else's. <laughs> if um, uh, if um, in a congregation and with a good liturgy, and I was brought up on the um, the 1662 prayer book, which I always loved, and so it was through that and through hymns and through the authorised version of the Bible, which we all had at my village primary school. I mean, it's unthinkable now, but all us sort of country country people were, um, uh, and very few people in those days at my primary school were were middle class. I, I was, but um, the great majority were agricultural workers' children or um, actually miners' children because there's a big gypsum mine in Sussex um, and there were a lot of miners' children. Um, but we all read, you know, a bit of the King James Bible was read read to us every day, actually. And we were taught from it in our classes. Um, and we had the collects from the Book of Common Prayer at daily assembly and so on and and traditional hymns. And all that made a, a deep impression on me and a favourable one. And also I can remember a lot of it. So um, you get the rhythms in your head and the phrases come into your mind um, unbidden. Um, and they sort of echo. So I'm a great believer. Um, sorry, I don't want to go on about this too much, but I'm a great believer in the importance of children learning words that are unfamiliar to them. I think the idea that um, you must do something that is, quote, relevant to the child is is wrong. Actually, you should be stretching the mind. And so um, I, um, I loved learning these new words and these thinking about these new things. We sang that hymn, which nobody would sing now, called "From Greenland's Icy Mountains," um, and um, and it says, "Like um, what though the soft, what though the sultry breezes blow softer Java's Isle, and every prospect pleases, but an only man is vile. In vain with lavish kindness the gifts of God are strown. The heathen in his blindness bows down to wood and stone." There's a several reasons why that would not now be permitted, but this sort of exotic picture conjured up and the and the words used not all familiar to me as a little boy like sultry for example um uh made a lasting impression and, and so and very much true of um biblical passages as well yeah, it's fascinating as you say that that those hymns you can still remember now and that tradition that culture had such a profound effect on you not only as a child but as you say you've, you've grown up to appreciate that and I suppose you'd be more critical of attempts to kind of modernize and say well we need to um, I guess the criticism would be sometimes the church wants to dumb things down to make it uh, more accessible but, but you've been a critic of that you think there's there's still something valuable, valuable to be had even in words that on first glance might be difficult for a, for a child to understand. Yes and there are a couple of reasons for that one is um, that um, they are great words and therefore um, you muck around with them at your peril. Uh, so that would also apply to Shakespeare, for example, which can be very hard to understand, but is basically worth 100% worth the effort. Um, but it's, I think, more than that, because it is the, it's the collective expression of a particular period in history where the English people 
were very religious. And so they actually understood religious language much better than modern English people do. And they were, and therefore it was much earthier, stronger, closer to reality, um, uh, more powerful. And um, uh, it, it was very important also that it was shared, it was known. Um, so religion, one of the fascinating things about religion to me is that it's the only way that very deep and important ideas can be conveyed to all levels of human intelligence and education. So, um, you know, if you talk philosophy to people who are not educated, it's just completely over their head. But funny enough, you can talk religion to people who are not educated. And the same is true with children. Children are much quicker to pick up ideas about God than they are about economics, let's say. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I think that's very important. And, um, and also what, of course, was happening in the case of the Bible was, as indeed more modern versions, obviously the Bible was not originally written in English. So these are translations. Um, and by some incredible piece of historical luck, it's famously said the authorised version of the Bible, the King James Version, was the only good book ever done by a committee. And um, uh, and so it was. I mean, it was extraordinary. And um, and it happened to capture a moment when the English knew how to talk about these things and, and ha had great scholarship so they could translate Hebrew and, and Greek and so on. Um, and it was a great um, blessing. And um, I, I think... Of course, one always needs to reinterpret the message in every age and in that sense, always find new language. But I think it's been a mistake to play down, to, to as W.H. Jordan put it, to spit on our luck. Um, we had that luck. And we now don't have a sort of something we share. And therefore, it's much, much harder to explain everything. That's a fascinating uh, topic. We could probably spend the entire interview just on this topic, but we must move on. Tell me a bit about, I want to delve a bit into your career in journalism because you've had some pretty incredible um, roles in in that world. But but going back to childhood and early teens, did you always want to be a journalist? Can you remember when that particular career path opened up for you? Um, my father had briefly been a journalist when young and I, I, I it seemed interesting to me. But I was very interested in political things and to some extent in um, in sort of church matters as well um, and what you might call public affairs. So it was that sort of sphere of things that I was and also in history. So I suppose the things that were going through my mind about what I might want to do would be journalism, politics, conceivably, though not very likely um, uh, being a clergyman, um, uh, pursuing an academic career being a diplomat or civil servant, those sort of things, rather than science or business. Um, uh, I was brought up on a farm. We, My family owned a little farm um, near here, but they weren't farmers. It was it was tenanted. But I, so I would never claim to deep knowledge of agriculture, but I, I always loved the farm and used to quote work on it, i.e. get up and make a nuisance of myself with people who were milking the cows. And... Um, or with harvest. Um, and um, so that's always been another dimension. I never saw myself as being capable of the great art of farming, but I always had an idea that I wanted to be in the country, which is not 100% compatible with all the other things I was interested in. <laughs> Skipping forward, you've held arguably some of the most powerful positions in the media, editing national newspapers like the Daily Telegraph, especially 
given that at the time you were doing those roles, significantly more people were reading print newspapers than they are today. Did it feel like you were in a position of great power at the time? Well, um, uh, funnily enough, no. And, but I think the reason for that is... Um... Too many of us are living in a bubble and not hearing both sides of the world's important stories. It's time for a more rounded perspective. Balanced. Relevant. Discover fresh biblical perspectives as we bring you wide-ranging stories that impact the church, wherever you live, however you worship. Discover the go-to source for Christian news. Subscribe now at premierchristianity.com. Now only £5 for three months. Well, um, uh, funnily enough, no. And, but I think the reason for that is um, that one's so engaged in the matter that one doesn't really think like that. And people for looking out from the outside think that the editors of a national newspaper do have great power. And actually, you know, maybe on reflection, they might be right or they might they might have been right. Um, but in an odd way, one didn't think about that. Every day you're dealing with story after story and, and you're also being very uh, competitive. You're trying to, you know, in our case, beat the Times or beat the Daily Mail on something or to a lesser extent, The Guardian. And... Um, it's amazing how much of your time is just consumed in making it the best you can, in your view, rather than thinking about uh, how much power you have. What I what I think was true is and is true still is that what the editor has is not really direct power, but he does have access. If he if he wants to get hold of um, a senior politician or somebody powerful in any walk of life, find out what's going on. Um, actually, he can um, pretty much. And um, I didn't see this exactly as a privilege at the time, but I think it is a privilege and one that can be um, abused. I was um, speaking to someone recently who headed up a large charity, and obviously it's it's not the same as being editor of the Daily Telegraph, but it was a, a similar dynamic where because of the position he had in the in the job role, certain doors would open for him. And he had a bit of a shock when he laid that job down and realized he wasn't getting these invitations anymore to these uh-huh. nice dinners, or he couldn't just ring people up. And there was something about it was he had to realize it wasn't about him, it was about the position he had. Yes. Um I haven't experienced such a dramatic change because I've continued as a um after editing as a as a weekly as a weekly columnist for both the Telegraph and the Spectator. So I've got that sort of bank of contacts, which is still added to, and I still uh, mingle. Um, and, th- and therefore, I haven't found the door suddenly slamming. But what I have found is that um, if you're in the office all the time at the centre of a newspaper, you find out things first. And on the whole, though I do claim some scoops now and again, I don't find out things first anymore. I find them out sort of second or third. <laughs> um but having been around for a long time, I do at least know who to contact. There must have been times where your faith came into conflict or had the potential to come into conflict with something you were being asked to do in a particular role. I mean, you could argue that any job that a Christian does, there will be ethical dilemmas. But I think especially in journalism, there must have been ethical tensions where what would be right for you to do as a journalist or an editor might might be right in terms of the job role, but perhaps your conscience wouldn't let you, or at least you had questions ethically. Did you ever remember any moments like that in your career? Well, in a way, um, it's a very I- interesting question, but I think 
one shouldn't sort of put ethics in a corner where you um, you sort of refer to it sometimes. Essentially, the the moral life of any person and and Christians are sort of explicitly aware of this affects everything. So the idea it could sort of you know you just sometimes draw on it when you get in um, go down the corridor and ask ask an ethics expert. It's not like that. Um, so these challenges come up the whole time, but you're right that they come up more acutely in um, in journalism, perhaps, than in some other trades. And one of the perennial ones is the conflict between um, hurting people's feelings because you're publishing something which will upset them and the need to tell people um, uh, what's... Um, what's happened and and that you think there is a quote a, a public interest i don't mean in the sense that the public is interested but the sense that it is a legitimate public interest in a particular um <clears throat> um item and it's not completely obvious sometimes what is right about that if i could give you an example um this is a story i got myself after i'd stopped editing um but i came to think through information that i'd pieced together that the present Archbishop of Canterbury um, was not the son of the person who, whose um, father, of the man he thought was his father. Um, and actually, he was the son of Sir Anthony Montague Brown, who was um, Winston Churchill's last private secretary. And this is, in ordin any ordinary human sense, a very interesting story. It's a very surprising thing. Um, I became confident of this story that it was true but then i had to ask myself well actually is it legitimate to tell this story um and uh luckily i knew the archbishop anyway so that made it easier because i asked if i could i didn't go to his press people i sort of arranged to see him as it were sort of get in by the back door and ask him about it and if he had said to me yes it's true but you can't use it, um, please. I would have had to, in my view, morally accept that. And I said to him when I saw him, I think this is the case, but you may be able to confirm or deny it. And and, and anyway, um, I don't want to do anything without your agreement. And he, to my surprise, well, first of all, he said he thought it wasn't true. That, and that didn't particularly surprise me. There's no reason why he should uh, have thought it was true. But then he said, um, Truth is better than doubt, which is always a good thing for an archbishop to say, I think. <laughs> um, so um, so um, let's find out. And so he authorized me to procure a, a DNA test. Um, and I went in and he and sort of administered the test. I was there in his presence uh, so that I could witness it and so on. And, and the test said that it was sort of 98% certain that Sir Anthony Montague Brown was his father. And so he accepted this with a very good grace and we ran the story and um, I'm sure it must have been painful for him. And it's always painful, I think, to discover such an astonishing fact about yourself. But I felt that given he'd often talked about the man who, who he thought was his father, who was a very unsatisfactory sort of runaway alcoholic, all these sort of things, um, and the effect that that had had on him, I, I felt that if he was happy with it, this truth was an important truth. And... Um, and actually, I think it did work out and it was a fascinating story. And I greatly admired the Archbishop for the way he handled the situation. But anyway, that sort of illustrates 
the problem. And I won't pretend that I wasn't longing to run the story. <laughs> you know, it was a fascinating story to me. And um, uh, and and so naturally, I wanted the outcome that we um, got. But I but I I did have to say to him, you know, I'm not blackmailing you. Um, uh, you tell me to go away, and I'll go away. Mm. It's a great example of a of a really useful resolution for both parties justin welby saying he wanted the truth and you being able to give him the truth even if that was slightly hard to hear but both of you being willing to in a sense do the story together justin welby going on record with you and giving comment and quote rather than you feeling like you would sort of go behind his back and and publish in a way can i just add, add one thing to that though because it's another example of the complications you get into these things they have a collateral effect uh, so it's not just the Archbishop. And in this particular case, it was very much his mother, who's still alive, still is still is alive, actually. And that was really the most difficult thing. She never told him about this. She's an old lady. What was going to happen about that? And he decided that he would tell her, and it went on from there. But you can see how those sort of ramifications, these are the things that is really quite hard to think about rightly. Yes, absolutely. It's it's complex. And it's it's a useful example of the complexities that, that those in the media face on a, if not daily, then certainly weekly or monthly basis. You've had a, a long career in journalism. There must have been moments where it hasn't gone so well. Do you have any regrets about past stories you've been involved in? Well, of course, lots and lots. Um, I mean, every day, you publish things on in the daily paper and so obviously a significant number of them will be wrong or wrongly angled or you will have missed a story or something like that um uh but i don't have and and we i do have some examples of um disasters where we've lost a libel action and particularly annoying which i can't comment on for legal reasons when you lose a libel action and you know what you said is true <laughs> because you can't uh, produce the right evidence in the right way um, but of course, there have been times when we simply were wrong and, and it was very regrettable we said it and um, we apologise and in some cases pay damages. Um, I don't think, um, I don't remember a moment where I thought this is a sort of moral catastrophe that we've done um, uh, X that we shouldn't have, um, but nor would I be able to justify properly masses of decisions that I've made, I'm sure. Um, I suppose if you look at, sometimes I think it's the things you don't publish that um, cause more regret. Um, or the emphasis you put in the wrong way. I mean, one example of this is that it's actually easier for journalism it's quite because it's quite a lazy thing to do, and I've done too much of it in my life, which is um, writing too much about Westminster politics rather than the effect of politics and government on everybody. So there's an inordinate amount about some row between two cabinet colleagues or something like that, um, but very little about how does legislation actually affect people, for example. So every virtually every day, certainly every week, a bad law is passed, which doesn't have its intended effects. I mean, it probably would have been better if it hadn't been passed at all. Um, and really, we should be paying, we, the media, should be paying much more attention to something like that, which affects 
you know, millions of people than, um, you know, why Michael Gove hated Boris Johnson or whatever. Um, and um, uh, but somehow or other, and all the media is guilty of this. I think we, we and I know this because I used to be a lobby journalist at some point before I was an editor. There's a sort of pack and we get very overexcited and we chase the story. And the story is about political intrigue for the most part. Um, and it can be fun and it can be, can, can you tell you something worth knowing? But often you're... Is it, also the, is it also the case, though, that people are genuinely more interested in the personalities um, than they are the, the policies? And I'll give you an example of that. In today's day and age where I, as an editor, can look at a dashboard here, it will tell me exactly what our audience are reading and what they're not reading. If you survey audiences and say, what are you interested in? They might say, oh, you know, the really important policies. But you look at what they're actually clicking on and reading. And often it is the more personality-driven stuff. Yes, and there's nothing wrong with personality stuff at all. We're all human beings and we're interested in other human beings. Very important. But um, I think it's dangerous when you um, ignore um, something that does matter. So, for example, I think the left has tended to ignore the effects of mass immigration, to take a a controversial example. Um, And um, similar accusations could be made against the right for dismissing the social effects of um industrial change let's say something like that um uh and somehow you've got to find a way of conveying that it can be more boring i admit it can be more boring in an individual article there's also a sort of simple question of charitableness and one of the things i very much dislike about a lot of coverage of the royal family and monarchy is that it's either at their feet or at their throat and neither is a satisfactory place to be in relation to them so um I'm sometimes stunned by how horrible people are about individual members of the royal family. I'm particularly stunned by it because actually people are very pro the monarchy. So I don't quite understand what's going on there, but perhaps it is just the soap opera element. Um, uh, but it, but it's, um, I've seen that, I saw that terrible effects in the Charles and Diana fallout in the 1990s when I was editing the Daily Telegraph. And it's very bad now in relation to Prince Harry and his accusation. Mm-hmm. We are, of course, at the time of recording, coming up um, to the coronation of King Charles. You're right that support for the monarchy is still high. But is it not also the case that support for King Charles is is lesser than that of support for his mother? And I think especially from a Christian point of view, a lot of Christians I speak to will, will recognise the incredible Christian faith of Queen Elizabeth II, but, but perhaps have a few more questions about King Charles. Is that a fair analysis from a Christian point of view in terms of what we can expect in the coming months and years of the reign of King Charles? Well, I think it is absolutely right about um, Queen Elizabeth II, because I would put that I would put it very high. I would say that she was the greatest um, sort of most. Well, who who are we to judge? But would seem to be like the greatest Christian monarch um, in a way in in known history because um when they were christians were monarchs with a with absolute power or a lot of power they were if you like more like politicians um but in a way what you've had with elizabeth ii is 70 years of being as good as you can possibly be in a christian way and i'm not saying she's sort of um you know sort of saint though actually if it was a catholic country i wouldn't be surprised if there were a movement to make her a saint um, but what she did all the time, every day, and one reason she had this lovely sort of air of calm about her, 
was that she lived a sort of prayerful and simple Christian life and tried to apply it in a charitable way to other people and to the and also stewardship and if you like almost a suffering servant idea uh, despite the fact she lived in great comfort and so on there is an element of suffering in, in continuing all this time to try and care for a whole country so that's very real and impressive and uh, I think it's very whole I think it, it never fails um but I think the criticism of the new king on this is not very fair. I mean, obviously, he got into very severe marital difficulties, and, and that's acknowledged. But I think in terms of his commitment to the Church of England and to spiritual matters, and also to the duty which his mother also felt to use the Church of England as a way of being kind to all denominations and all faiths, so a sort of giving hospitality, as it were. I think those are all real things and something he cares about very deeply. Um, and uh, I don't think he's been careless or whimsical. One of the things that we learned about King Edward VIII after his abdication was that he had been extremely bored and um, dismissive of church, church and religious matters. Not true at all about the present king. Um, a serious interest in Christianity, uh, a churchgoer, um, a lover of liturgy, and a serious interest in other faiths too, notably Islam, but also Judaism, um, and um, and I think a, a kindly interest. So mm. I think that's all good. I think his his interest in other faiths is one of the ways in which he might be marked out as slightly different. Is it not true that Queen Elizabeth? especially in her latter years, some of her speeches at Christmas time, she was not afraid to emphasise her own personal faith in Jesus Christ, and she would use that language. I've not heard King Charles use that same... I've, I've heard him emphasise the importance of interfaith relations and speaking highly of, of other faiths. I've not heard him emphasise his own personal Christian faith to the same extent as his mother. Well, I'm not sure you're quite right about that, because I've I've... I've... I must be one of the few people who've read all her uh, Christian uh, Christmas messages, um, which I think of which are, I think, 69. And it's absolutely true, first of all, that they are definitely Christian and explicitly so. But it wouldn't really be true to say that they express her personal faith. Um, uh, they do, I think, but not but not directly. Um, so she w has never done what you might call a sort of evangelical thing about I, Elizabeth, you know, God came into my life, not that sort of thing at all. Um, she's always kept a reserve about that. Um, uh, and um, I think that's important because even in the time when she was a young woman, she knew that you shouldn't be talking, you shouldn't be, as it were, imposing your Christianity on people. What she wanted to do was to um, sh show the importance of living in that way and learning from the Christian example. So for you, there's no um, no concern when it comes to King Charles. In terms of his representation of the Christian faith, you think he will do just as good a job as, as his mother? Yes. I mean, one can't... Um, I do think, well, she did such a special job, it's difficult, but I, but I think he will do a good job. And, um, and I think um, one does have to remember that he can only go so far because being supreme governor of the Church of England is an important role, but it, it jolly well doesn't mean telling people what to believe. And um, and we live in, he, he's adapted, I think, quite adroitly to a multi-faith society. 
and help to make other faiths feel at home. But he hasn't got into that mishmash situation when you say, oh, well, all faiths are the same and it doesn't matter. He doesn't say that. Um, mm. But it's all to do with a, a kindly um, an open-minded approach to them. I think that's good. And I think you'll see at the coronation that there's no compromise with the specifically Christian elements of this, which are overwhelming. It's a, it's one of the most Christian of all the services connected with the royal family. In fact, I would say the most Christian, really. Uh, and it includes a communion. There won't, but there won't be, that won't be compromised. But what I think we will see is a greater reflection in who's taking part in the type of multi-faith uh, society that we are today. And I think that's a, the right combination. It's going to be very interesting to see how the wider wider society in Britain view the coronation. It's very difficult to anticipate these things ahead of time. But as you say, it is an explicitly Christian service, a church service. Actually, if we look at the wording around it, expected to be very overt in saying um, this is um, there is a divine element to King Charles becoming becoming king. You know, I think some Christians might struggle with that as much as some atheists. But what do you think secular society will make of a coronation service? Which, of course, for a lot of people, they would have never seen a coronation service ever in their lifetimes. Might it be somewhat of a shock for some people? Well, of course, there are a lot of people now who, obviously, even in 1953, there were a lot of people who were not remotely Christian. But there were far fewer people than there are now who knew absolutely nothing about this. So there will be a significant number of people watching it who will, have, will not have the faintest idea what this is about. Um, really not the faintest. You, you, I often find out if you, even if you, in public, if you say something like even the Ten Commandments or something, people don't know what you're talking about. Um, or the Good Samaritan or some such simple phrase, you realise a significant number of people absolutely haven't heard of anything. Um, but I, and by the way, it's sort of, it is deeply the coronation and sort of almost arcanely religious because it's not just about God and um, morality and so on. It's about the nature of priesthood and an anointing and um, how the king is, uh, the king's role is made sacred and how that derives from what happened to King David and, uh, and, and so on. So it's, it goes a long way in and to areas which a lot of people would find obscure. But I would be very surprised if normal people find that upsetting. I think the overall feeling they will get is of continuity and seriousness and commitment and um, service and something deep and universal, which is expressed in kingship. And of course, sometimes people misrepresent this as the divine right of kings. It's not what it's about. It is about the divine duty of kings. Um, and um, And that is to do with, again, the idea of the that the most, the grandest person is the greatest servant that they, 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 they serve. And the Pope, one of the Pope's titles, of course, is Servus Servorum Dei, um, Servant of the Servants of God. Mm. So it's this paradoxical Judeo-Christian idea that the, the highest is ought to be the lowest. Yes. And that's expressed in the pageantry to a mixture of um, pomp and humility. Yes. I wanted to come back to your own personal faith because you mentioned growing up anglican and, and you were for for a long time but you did convert to catholicism and i'd love to dig into some of the reasons for that uh what was it that made you 
change. I never know if convert is the right word. I don't know if you see it as, as a conversion or just a, a movement into another form of Christian faith. Yes, I, I probably wouldn't use the word convert. After all, um, Catholics and Anglicans share the same uh, um, sacrament of baptism. So you don't have to become a Christian having been something else. You are a Christian already. Um, but like a lot of people, I suppose the, the most famous person in this situation in England was John Henry Newman um, uh, in the 19th century. Um, I was always worried by a question that doesn't worry. Plenty of Christians are not worried by this, which is what is the true church? What 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 is the, the divine society on earth that Jesus intended? And um, I found it increasingly difficult to think that First of all, it seems to me this question does matter. Secondly, um, once you've started to think it matters, it's quite hard to believe that Church of England is the answer. Um, And um, I eventually accepted the... Is that, just just, just to clarify, is that because the Church of England in the history of church history comes so late? Is that the reason why it's so hard to believe that the Church of England is is designated as the the one Uh, church? It's not exactly that. It's more, I think, that... The word Catholic is very important. Of course, that is used in, in, the, in the creeds in the Church of England as well, meaning universal. That's what Catholic means, as you know. And, um, and um, it seems to me that the Church of Christ must be, we know that Christ intended it to be universal. And so there's something odd about it being of England. I mean, I'm, I'm patriotic, but I, I, it, it, it can't really be that England is the answer it's it's um sure uh, it's 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 the world and um uh would you not get that from the anglican communion though would that well, not resolve that well um i think not really because really the anglican communion as indeed its name suggests is a sort of emanation of england and if you were historically it's an emanation of the empire so it's um uh, not that i'm one of these people who hates the british empire but it is a matter of historical fact that that's why um, the Anglican Communion exists. Um, so again, I don't think it has full Catholic claims. However, um, you know, I take quite a modern view of this. So I wasn't in the old days. If you became a Catholic, you had to repudiate Anglicanism completely, and um, you know, never go near an Anglican church and all that sort of thing. And of course, I don't feel like that at all. My my wife is an Anglican church warden, um, and um, I actually I feel friendlier towards the Church of England now that I'm not in it than when I <laughs> than when I did, um, and um, and I wish it it very well, and I think it performs a very important, though sadly declining, part of English life. Um, but sometimes when people become Catholic, they say, "Oh, it's like coming home." I didn't feel that at all. I felt that it's like leaving home, um, and therefore painful in some ways, but. And I don't think it's like arriving anywhere. But what I do think and continue to think is it's like having the right map and therefore being on the right route, or if you like, um, the right um, sat-nav. Um, so um, so I, the, the sense of what church you are is, is not, the, it's not the end point at all, is it? It's, it's fundamentally not the, the key thing at all. But you, you've you've... It's terribly helpful to be on the right way. What's that dynamic like for for you and your wife? Does that mean you go to different churches on a Sunday? Uh, usually, yes. Though, um, because ours, hers is the parish church of the village, 
I'm quite often to be seen there. Um, she's not to be seen at mine because it's somewhere else and she's a busy church warden. But I, you know, at high days and holidays and things to do with ch- children or whatever, um, I would I would be seen in in our parish. Yes. At our parish, and, you and, haven't, and very and very kindly welcomed, you know. I was going to say, and you haven't got into trouble for it yet. No, <laughs> <laughs> I'm pleased to hear it. I'm pleased to hear it. Um, on the on the subject of churches, and in this case, church buildings, I noticed that you're chairman of the Rectory Society, which encourages wider appreciation of the cultural importance of rectories, vicarages. Can you just explain why that's a particular area of interest, and and why the Rectory Society? exists and, and need, needs to exist for that purpose well i've always been interested in architectural and historical things and the connection between those things and people's lives and and the history of this country and other countries and we bought this old rectory from which i'm speaking to you now um about a bit more than 25 years ago and it struck me that these are very interesting buildings and often have very interesting histories but they've never really been looked at um collectively or indeed you know, with individual study. And I thought it'd be fun to found a society to establish that interest. We're not a learned society, but we're more like a fan club. And um, we go on visits um, to um, look at one, because of course, most of them are not open to the public. So members kindly let us in. And of course, when we go to the, uh, even if they're old vicarages and old rectories, we also go to the church and we look at the church. And it's very interesting to see the link that historically existed between the buildings and the church, sadly less so now, and also the remarkable people who were brought up because because parishes are all over England, it was the best way of dispersing sort of intellectual life in the country. And so you get masses and masses of important people, minds and poets and writers and things who who have that background, um, you know, like Tennyson, for example, uh, or... or, or um, well, more recently, uh, Laurence Olivier or Jane Austen, famously. Um, uh, and uh, um, out of that sort of emanates a whole world of literature and thought, um, which has been immensely influential in um, in our life. So it's it's a very and they often they often are very beautiful. Um, and they're all sort, you know, there are Victorian ones and very, very old ones and Georgian ones and little ones and big ones. And um, uh you learn and often they're horticulturally very interesting um all sorts of things so we have great time and we have um an annual general meeting where we have speakers this year we had michael palin who was extremely good um and we've had all sorts mervyn king the government of the bank of England, governor of the bank of England, as was tom stoppard um uh sort of great range of um and occasionally more learned people like dermot mcculloch who wrote the best book on um thomas cromwell and is a great ecclesiastical historian, and so on. Um, and um, it's just very nice, and it, I, I, I love it, and people are very appreciative. It's interesting, even some of the names you, you mentioned there, there does seem to be this kind of trend of those who may not actually have a Christian faith, but recognising the importance of these buildings, even of our culture, our heritage, some of what we were speaking about a moment ago to do with the royal family even, and, and it's, it seems to be this this growing sense in our society from people saying, oh, I don't actually believe in God, don't believe Jesus existed, but I recognise there's something really important about the Christian heritage and makeup of the country. Yes, of course, the great best expression of this is Philip Larkin's famous poem called Church Going, which is about um, 
he says he doesn't believe anything, but he says this is a a serious place. This is, I think he, uh, and it, and the last line is if only because so so many dead lie around. It's to do with who's that the people. All these people have been there. They've lived in it and they've died and they've been buried there, and there is something remarkable about that and ancient. Um, I think as a matter of fact that um, though belief is of course completely separate from interest in these things, um, certainly for someone sort of approach I have, um, th that interest would tend to prompt belief. It's not, the obviously faith is a gift of grace, so it doesn't, um, you know, you, you can't claim credit for it, but I think it's important to um, the the atmosphere created by the seeing and hearing and uh, visiting such places and understanding what they've done for this country, a subject which Tom Holland, the writer, is very good on, for example, um, uh, is um, and and for the world, not just this country, is very um, really matters. Absolutely. Tom Holland has uh, written on this subject for us at Premier Christianity more than once. And uh, I think you're right. It's a um, very interesting way of looking at things. I'm fascinated by what you just said about this interest in some of the architecture and the history of the UK could then in some way uh, open people up to the possibility of faith. It's an interesting idea that that could be the front door. It'd be interesting to watch, watch that trend. Um, in the little time that we've got remaining, I didn't want the time to pass without me recognising one of the things you're most well known for, and that is being the biographer of Margaret Thatcher. And as I understand it, you were selected, even handpicked for that particular role. So tell me a bit about the moment you got that phone call or message through to say, we would like you to write what became a, a three-volume biography of Margaret Thatcher. Well, it was Lady Thatcher's idea in 1997. Um, and I think she knew that this was a big task and therefore it had to be someone of a younger generation than her doing it. Um, and she knew that somebody was going to write her biographer and people advised the biography and people advised her that therefore she would be better rather than standing back from it to choose someone who she, with whom she had a reasonable relationship and invite them to get on with it. And she therefore approached me through her private secretary and then uh i discussed it with him and then i talked to her about it and um and the point of it was that's why it's so long is because i was the first person to see all this paper and to get all this access both to government paper and her paper and also to all the people who were close to her in, in the past she discouraged them from talking and now she encouraged them and I talked to her. So it was, in that sense, it was as complete as it could be. And I interviewed 600 people for the book, as well as re seeing all these um, enormous amount of paper, because she was a very busy lady in office for a very long time. Um, so it took a vast amount of work. But um, that was the idea to be um, uh, pretty comprehensive. And she very sensibly said, I, Margaret Thatcher, will not be allowed to read this book and it cannot appear in my lifetime because otherwise people would have thought she was trying to control it and therefore it would have lost historical value. And she was as good as gold about that. And she never, ever tried to lean on me. Um, and the worst she ever did was try to avoid telling me some things. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, but um, those conditions, I think, made it very good. And also she didn't pay me. What she said was, here it is. Now you go and sell the idea to a publisher. So I, I wasn't under her thumb in any way. Yes, which 
again, you being a journalist must have been an arrangement that really suited you naturally for what you'd want to do as a as a reporter and be free of that that bias and, and not be told what to write. Yes, but with one important exception, which is that being a journalist, what you write goes away very quickly. Um, you you write it, you go to bed, it goes to bed, and it's a new day. Tomorrow's tomorrow's chip paper. Exactly. So I um I had no idea. I never really written a book before. So the the architecture of an enormous book is something com- I was completely unfamiliar with, and um, I I don't really know how I dealt with that question but um that was the great challenge um and it took the whole thing took more than 20 years and the actual writing of that took more than 10 years mm. I mean I'm aware and even the, the name Margaret Thatcher is such a polarizing name even even for for younger people today who may not have even lived through that time of political history what's your read of that why she is continues to be such a polarizing figure and we saw this didn't we at the time of her death i know you were commenting of course in the media and you know were you surprised at the the level of of anger um even at the time of, of her death when normally i think there would be this sense of respect for someone who had just passed away that wasn't always the case was it it wasn't always the case but i think the level of anger was exaggerated and um played up particularly by the bbc if you um you know, attending the funeral, um, very, very large numbers of people came out and almost nobody demonstrated against it. There were a few tiny, tiny things. Um, and I think my own feeling about, uh, well, first of all, it is true that she was, she provoked disagreement and she intended to do that because she felt that in order to make make Britain better and make Britain, Britain recover many of its best qualities, big things had to happen. And obviously that's going to be, she wanted the argument. She wanted to have the argument. Um, and in that sense, she welcomed controversy. Uh, but my mission as a biographer was not to um, defend her or, or indeed attack her, but to try and understand and relate uh, what happened. And also to show that it was very remarkable because um, she was the one and only woman of real importance in public life at that time, <laughs> apart from the Queen, of course, um, but in terms of politics. And um, uh, this was a remarkable story. And she was a remarkable person and she was very committed. And when she got to the top, she stayed there. So um, 11 and a half years in office is a phenomenal time. And she never stopped working. I mean, literally not a day without work. And um, so this is very significant. And I think, funnily enough, I've you know, been all, all around the world talking about her pretty much. And um, in an odd way, this is better understood abroad than it is here, because here there's so much controversy. But if you stand back and look, the question I find in the United States or the Far East or Eastern Europe is not, was Mrs. Thatcher bad or good? or It's what an extraordinary story. It matters, doesn't it? That sort of thing. What was Thatcherism? What did she do about the Cold War? What did she do about economics? What did she do about changing people's view of women leaders? All these things. Um, and that is common ground, actually. And, um, and in that sense, she's admired. Um, people re- re- put her just in terms of rank, very high up, even if um, in importance, even if they, they disagree with her or they don't like her or, you know, um, and therefore it's a completely fascinating story in my view and much, much more interesting than that of a, a normal male British prime minister. 
Well, talking of, I'm not sure if he'd be considered normal, um, but another contentious <laughs> political figure, uh, another male uh, prime minister who I must mention, albeit briefly. You were a, um, your work at The Spectator when you employed a young journalist by the name of Boris Johnson. And um, fast forward a few years and you were given a life peerage by the same Boris Johnson as uh, he obviously went on to become prime minister. It's a man that you've known for some time and um, another perhaps divisive political figure who you've been quite close to. And he could hardly be more different <laughs> uh, from Mrs. Thatcher. Um, uh, by the way, it's always said that I employed him at The Spectator. It's not true, actually. I employed him at The Telegraph, in fact. Um, ah, apologies. It was, it was somewhat later on. But yes, um, we were close colleagues from the late, the end of the 1980s um, through the 90s. Um, and then actually he employed me because when he became editor of The Spectator, um, I did a column for him. Uh, but um, yes, I mean, it's, 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 I'd be very lucky to know these two <laughs> um, utterly different people um, and um, sort of enjoyed the company of both. Um, uh, Boris, um, my, my essential thing about Boris, it, very obvious point, but somehow people miss it, is that um, he has very grave uh, defects, which are never going to go away. But he's very, very remarkable. And um, in my view, that meant that he was the only person who could bring off Brexit. Um, I supported Brexit, so um, I had a sort of vested interest in that, but it also made me think about it um, more strongly than if I had been against it, I suppose. And it seemed to me that he was the only political leader capable of the sort of transformative quality, which could have won what was a popular revolt against the elites. And um, and so it proved. So he, first of all, um, succeeded in that in the referendum, and then he succeeded in becoming the party leader, and then he succeeded in getting Brexit, even if in an imperfect form, and then he succeeded in winning the general election. And those are permanently remarkable achievements, and only he could have done it. Now, then things largely went wrong, and I still haven't really been able to work out how much that's to do with the bad lack of COVID, and how much is that to do with Boris's personal failings clearly both are involved um i would say I would it's, only... just, it's more than personal failings isn't it i mean again from a christian point of view it's an integrity issue that many christian commentators would look at this and say this is a man who has not shown integrity for a long period of time and it wasn't just the what became known as Partygate, but other examples where he's not proven himself to be trustworthy and a man of his word and again from a christian point of view is there not something healthy about a quote unquote Christian society that actually wants to hold politicians to a standard of morality that says we want political leaders who are moral people? Um yes, um that's right. And nobody could say that um Boris was a perfect human being. What I think though, what I've noticed is that all this is very coloured by um views. I mean uh, political views. And what I think is missing in this is how incredibly much all politicians and they can hardly avoid it, do quite bad things um, and don't tell the truth. So the idea that it's sort of, um, this is an amazing thing that Boris has introduced into politics, which is unknown before, is very far from the case. And it, it, I'm afraid it's quality of some very remarkable leaders that they have that reputation. So Boris stands in the tradition of Disraeli and Lloyd George, both of whom were absolutely outstanding politicians. 
but we're not scrupulous, and nor is he. And that should be recognised, but I think politics being such a wicked game, um, it doesn't automatically write people off for that. Well, Lord Charles Moore, I could happily go on for another hour, but sadly our time is up. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and for talking to us here at Premier Christian Radio. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much indeed. Lovely. You are listening to Premier Christian Radio. I am Sam Hales and that was my conversation with Lord Charles Moore. If you enjoyed that chat, you can actually read it in the upcoming issue of Premier Christianity magazine. In fact, it has just been released. If you want to be one of the first to get a hold of that copy, it's one that you don't want to miss because we've got loads of detail about the upcoming coronation, what we can expect as Christians and the Christian nature of that ceremony we have a range of opinions in the latest issue from republican to royalist and it's all contained in the latest issue of premier christianity magazine you don't want to miss it get yourself a copy now at premierchristianity.com that's premierchristianity.com my thanks to charles moore for joining us and my thanks to you as well for coming along and listening in it's been a pleasure to have your company this afternoon right here on premier christian radio have a great rest of your weekend You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.